how to address personal shame and guilt, how to approach yourself without judgment, how to build up your stress tolerance, the difference between high aspirations versus high expectations, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 447 with cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist, Dr. Scott Kaufman, and his co-author and physician and well-being expert, Jordan Feingold. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Best You Podcast with me, your host, Nick Carrier. At Best You, we exist to help individuals who are hungry for growth get closer to the best version of themselves so that they can live meaningful and impactful lives. One way that we do this is through the 10-week transformation where we help people lose body fat, build muscle, and create healthy habits so that they are a positive role model for others. If you're interested in losing 5 to 20 pounds in the next 10 weeks or just making sure that your health habits are rock solid going into the holidays, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10WT to get started today. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10WT to get started today. Today, y'all, I am super pumped to bring you for the second time on the Best You Podcast, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and now for the first time, his co-author, Jordan Feingold. Scott is the founder and director of the Center for Human Potential and host of the Psychology Podcast, which has received more than 20 million downloads. He's also the author slash editor of 10 different books, including the forthcoming book, Choose Growth, a workbook for transcendent trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It was also co-authored with Jordan Feingold, who's also on the show today, who's a physician, researcher, and well-being expert, integrating the science of well-being and human flourishing into healthcare and medicine, and she's also the founder of the emerging field of positive medicine. But before diving into the episode, be sure you're subscribing to The Best You Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and be sure you share the episode with a friend or family member while you are listening. They're going to want to hear this one. All you got to do is send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast, or just click those three little dots on your screen, click to share, text it to them, do it right now. And if you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you leave a five-star rating and review. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with Dr. Scott Kaufman and Jordan Feingold. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined for the second time by Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman and also his co-author of their most recent book, Choose Growth, uh, Jordan Feingold. Uh, Scott and Jordan, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. I just want to say um, I'm so proud of your growth. Um, I watch you on Instagram, and I learn a lot about a lot about health and um and perseverance and uh just it's incredible since the last time we talked to now you know what you've accomplished and i'm just so proud of you awesome man well i I really appreciate that and your support over the last i think maybe a couple years now since we talked on the podcast for the first time is uh it's most appreciated so i i appreciate the uh, the kind words but today we're going to talk about y'all's newest book uh choose growth a workbook for transcending trauma fear and self-doubt before i kind of dive into the content of the book i want to get a little bit more background on kind of y'all's relationship and, and getting together on working on the book. I know that Jordan, you were a student in 
in Scott's class in 2015, you were a senior and you kind of really fell in love with a lot of the content that he was uh, teaching to you guys. And then a little bit later, when you guys were both in New York, you worked on some exercises for his his last book, Transcend, and, and you worked on some workshop stuff and some content stuff together. And so I want to kind of hear from, from you guys, when was the decision of this book made and, and how did that come about? Yeah, you know, Jordan was in my class, and that is true. And she's one of my best students of all time. There's no doubt about that. But this book more uh, more uh, recently grew out of great collaboration we've had the past three or four years or so, where I was teaching the science of living well at Columbia before the pandemic. And Jordan did a, just a terrific job helping me with the exercises for the students, the growth challenges, uh, we like to call them. And then when my book Transcend came out, I was I wanted to make it a big part of that book, but my publisher I, I had already written 500 pages, so my publisher's like Scotty, you need a cut. So I uh, we I snuck it in. I convinced them to let me sneak all the activities into an appendix. So actually, there's some overlap, but but all but not a lot. But there's some overlap in the exercise. And then um, after Transcend came out, that that book did pretty well, and my publisher was like, Have you thought about doing a follow up workbook? And my mind immediately went to Jordan, who's just so amazing at this stuff, and uh, called her up. I was like, you want to write a book with me? And she immediately was like, yes. And the rest is history, which is now published. Maybe Jordan could speak more to her experience in my class all the way back to 2015. But I just wanted to talk about just the genesis of this book is really more of the past three, four years and the amazing collaboration we've had. Yeah. Jordan, if you don't mind, I might ask you kind of a specific question on that. You know, And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up at the beginning was because I think that oftentimes opportunities that people are able to step in are only only come about when people express interest or express curiosity or do things that maybe they weren't asked to do. And I know that there's obviously a lot of other students in his class as well, but not all of them ended up co-authoring this this book and this workbook with him. So what are some of the things that you did that maybe expressed your curiosity, your interest, or your, your knowledge on the topic that kind of allowed you to be one of the people that worked with him? It's such a good question. And it's something I've actually thought a lot about in college, I was really busy. I was pre-med, so I had to take all of the pre-med classes. I majored in a non-science, so none of my pre-med classes counted towards my major, which was more about the history and sociology of science and medicine. And then I was also in an acapella group. I did a thousand extracurricular activities. I, I did a lot other than class. So it meant that in those valuable, precious hours when I actually was in the classroom, I was I had to be fully engaged because I didn't have a lot of time outside of class to study, to review my notes. So the way that I was able to succeed as an undergraduate and really throughout my whole educational career was to be so fully present in those moments when I was in the classroom when the material was being taught. And when you have a professor like Scott, who is so engaging, it was really organic. And it led me to want to work with him in other ways. I thought, you know, if I'm going to do the Master's of Applied Positive Psychology program after I graduate, maybe we can work together in some capacity. And I applied for a job to work with Scott. And I got turned down because he needed to make a, he needed a research coordinator who could commit to two years, which I, at that time, just wasn't able to do because I knew I wanted to go to medical school. So instead of saying, okay, this isn't going to work out, we yes anded, which is a big theme in the book. I said, okay, I cannot 
do this particular role for you? What else do you have going on that I can get involved with? So I became one of his teacher's assistants when he taught the following year at Penn. We developed a whole internship program for the summer after that semester with Angela Duckworth with the Imagination Institute. Remember, Scott? And I sort of this like liaison kind of scientific camp counselor for these interns. And opportunities beget opportunities. And once that door was open and Scott and I realized we have this beautiful working relationship, very synergistic, it turned into, it, it evolved into continuing to work together all of these years. That's, that's so cool. You never quite put it this way. So uh, it's, it was really uh, nice to hear that. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think it's one of the things that I try to always ask myself and I try to coach other people to ask themselves is when something doesn't happen as planned is to ask yourself, okay, what does this now make possible? You know, this one opportunity was, is not there anymore, but what does this now make possible? Just earlier today, I was supposed to have another podcast. They had to cancel last minute and I immediately was frustrated, but then I was like, wait, no, now I have actually more time. What does this make possible? What can I use with it? And so I think you did a really good job of both uh, kind of like asking yourself that question and then acting upon it as well. Uh, Next thing I want to kind of get into is big picture and this is actually not something that I prepared that I was going to ask, but I just thought about it when when you guys were speaking. You know, the book, the workbook is called Choose Growth. And to me, I, when I talk about the Best You podcast and the process of getting closer to the best version of yourself, I think of growth as becoming more than you currently are, like becoming an upgraded version of yourself. And some of the things that I say is gaining more knowledge, skills, and experience than the past version of yourself had had. And so I, I'm curious to hear from you guys, uh, Scott, I'll start with you. What, what does growth actually mean to you? Like what is the, yeah, what does growth mean to you? I'll just leave it at that. I mean, quite literally growth means change. And I view it as the kind of change that leads to greater self-insight, greater connection to others, greater connection to the world and greater connection to your purpose. So of course I'm not referring to just any kind of change. I am referring to change that fits those kind of criteria. Does that make now, sense? Yeah, it does. And one of the things, you know, growth, I think when the word, I feel like a lot of us think growth means to become more than or become bigger. Do you feel like the, it doesn't necessarily mean that? Do you think that change can also be like shedding some things or just transforming? Does it have to be bigger? Or does it? Well, absolutely. And I think that's not every change needs to be macro, you know, throughout the course of the day, you can have lots and lots of micro changes that add up and multiply over time, for sure. Um, So, uh, yeah, and I think the idea of sometimes, you know, saying no to things and shedding things in your life so you can be more focused on other on the things that really uh, are going to lead to the greatest levels of meaningful growth, you know, we can call it meaningful growth. I think that's a, a huge component of this. Jordan, do you want to touch on that too? Sure. Yes, I I think growth and and choosing growth, recognizing that we have a choice. We there's always a choice in how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, how we integrate the experiences that happen to us. The idea of growing is about at what we say in the book, becoming all that we can become and integrating the various parts of ourselves, not just necessarily nurturing the best parts, also welcoming and understanding how we can 
work with some of the darker parts of ourselves and how how we grow as organisms, as individuals, and how we can be more symbiotic and synergistic with the other people around us and the world around us and our communities and, and the larger collective of humanity. Awesome. I like, I love that. Let, let's go, let's go there. You know, you, you t- touched on, you said integrating the various parts of ourselves. It is not always, not always the best parts of ourselves, but it's sometimes it's the dark sides of ourselves. And you guys have a area, a, a topic in your book about that. And so talk to us a little bit about what that means. Cause some people are probably listening and are like, what I have to integrate the dark side of myself. How do I actually do that in a way that allows me to change in a positive manner? Sure. So Many of us walk around every day with parts of ourselves that it could be anything. It could be a personality trait. It could be an insecurity. It could be a physical health problem. It might be a mental illness, something that we may hold some degree of shame or something that we want to keep tucked away from others or even below the level of our own consciousness. It may be a history of unhealed trauma. It may be um, some horrifying, embarrassing thing that happened to us when we were a child that we still think about. Our, our job in in labeling this as the, the darker side or the shadow side is not to say what this is for any one person or to say what is or is not a dark part, but to help people recognize that we all have these things and identify for themselves what are those things that they are holding that they are deliberately or unconsciously tucking away below their level of attention because it's easier not to deal with these things. And we talk about this idea that when we can deliberately begin to welcome these things in and not just open the floodgates for them, but maybe crack the door open or begin to say, here, why don't, why don't you come meet me for lunch on Tuesday? And we can spend an hour engaging with this part of myself, with, with this thing that brings me some sense of shame, some sense of insecurity that we can actually reduce the anxiety associated with these things. Because when we avoid, 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 it only reinforces the idea that these things are scary and that these things should be kept away because we can survive and live our lives without thinking about them. But when we open that door and engage more deliberately, we can shed some of the shame. We can connect more deeply with others. We realize that doors can open for us and we can live as more whole versions of ourselves. Hmm. Scott talked about how if somebody wants to spend an hour either with maybe one of those negative things that they see about themselves or just an hour trying to discover what a potentially negative thing that they perceive about themselves or try to discover some shame that they might hold in the past, what are some things that they can do or questions that they can ask themselves to, one, discover what something like that might be, a shame that they might have uh, might be, and then two, once it's discovered, what does the process look like a little bit on how to move past it or maybe use it in a positive way? You mean like integrate it in a positive way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm really a big fan of mindfulness meditation and being able to just entertain whatever comes up, whatever arises. There's a particular type of mindfulness called open monitoring meditation that I think is particularly suited toward uh, this kind of exercise that we're talking about. And you just, without judgment, you think through, um, 
you know, all different aspects of yourself. Who am I? You know, ask yourself the question, who am I in your head? You know, with your eyes closed, if you want, um, on a cushion um, and see what comes in. <laughs> and I think we often have this uh, tendency to judge ourselves very harshly and judge the different sides of ourselves in various ways, positively and negatively. So um, not just negatively, like people are also quite good at, at saying things they like about themselves too, but there's an authenticity bias. Um, that is what I call it, the authenticity bias, um, where people, and studies show this to be the case, where when you ask people to say, who is your real self, people will only put the most moral qualities, the most uh, the things they're most proud of about themselves as their real self, and they'll disavow everything else. <laughs> Um, you know, you see that with like celebrities who, uh, you know, they do these, they get these sex scandals and then, uh, and then they're like, look, everyone, that wasn't the real me. That wasn't the real me, you know? And, uh, um, you're like, well, I don't know. Is that really taking responsibility for your whole self? You know? So I really like the uh, practice of letting it all in, uh, all the sides of yourself as, as, as all parts of this much bigger container, you know? You know, the, 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 the whole self, you know, is, is, is big enough to contain everything um, as a first step of acceptance. But the idea of what do you want to integrate? What do you want to change? I think that that should come as a, a later step. So just not the first step. But it's quite it's quite fine to eventually make judgments about things that you think are holding you back from your best self. So maybe you can then in, envision or imagine who is your best self, right? Who's the best you? <laughs> this is the podcast we're on right now. And really get clear with that in mental image. And then just really think through which are these sides of yourself that are really incompatible with that. Um, that really um, uh, maybe in a different flavor, a different version, a different manifestation would, would do a much better job helping you be a better you. But you know, the more you can keep your eye on that that future image of yourself, um, so many other areas of your life really do fall in line. And, um, and it's uh, we call it a top level goal in psychology. And uh, you can have a goal hierarchy, you know, and yeah. getting really clear on your goal hierarchy and how are your lower level goals feeding into the higher level, top level goal of who you want to become is is really important. I would suggest people mapping that out literally on pencil. You got your pencil already in your ear. Um, you know, just like write that shit down. <laughs> it's yeah. so valuable. It's so valuable to get clear with your goal hierarchy. Yeah, no, I think that's so I think also sometimes if lower level goals are not directly meaningful, like doing them is not that meaningful. If you can see how they impact that higher level goal, then they become motivating and meaningful in relationship to that higher level goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. You may want to cut some things out uh, of, of your low level, your low, lower level goal hierarchy. I always use the example of like the top level goal being, I want to be healthy. Right. And then right under that, you know, you can have various domains in the hierarchy, like food, what are all the areas in your life that contribute to being healthy. And then under each of those, are some more specific things. But once the more specific you get, you start to realize, well, there are certain things that I do during the course of my day, goals that I have that are not really compatible with any of these domains. And and you can really start to think of that through and think about if you really want to uh, make that a prominent thing in your during the course of your day anymore. Yeah, I think that I think you nailed it on the head. Um, one of the things I really loved from one of the chapters of your book was kind of getting outside of your comfort zone because I think that's one of the biggest components to 
to growth and, and becoming an upgraded version of yourself like we've kind of touched on in the past. And some of the ideas that you guys talk about are stress tolerance and psychological flexibility and, and mindfulness. And I want you to kind of talk about what stress tolerance is and how somebody can potentially build their stress tolerance and why it's so important to build that stress tolerance. Jordan? Sure. So I did, in the course of writing this book, I did a few things that for me built up my stress tolerance. So I tend to be really extroverted and I love to be in the company of others. And I took a whole week vacation alone that was one of the things I did. I learned to ride a bike (laughs) for the first time in my life. (laughs) It was something that I had actually tried to do a few times before. And I just had given up on myself. I fell too many times and just thought I was done and never going to ride a bike. And I said, no, this is something I value. And it's something that I want to do. So stress tolerance is you, you identify what are these situations that maybe I'm avoiding, avoiding being alone, for example. And you, you, you deliberately set yourself up for an experiment. Yes. You have a way out. You have maybe when I was riding a bike, I had, I had my partner there to make sure that I wasn't going to die. I had a helmet on when I planned my trip. I knew I was going to LA where I had many friends. I wasn't necessarily isolated in the desert. I was putting myself, I was giving myself a healthy dose of discomfort such that I knew I had it out and I knew I could set myself up to be successful in this endeavor. And you do it. And what happens when you begin to expand your comfort zone is that you can reinforce your sense of authentic mastery, which feeds into a healthy self-esteem. So it's really about understanding and conceptualizing what are some of the things perhaps I'm avoiding? What, what, what am I, in what ways am I really remaining in the, the radius of my comfort zone? And how can I push those boundaries in a way that is not reckless or dangerous that is is still safe for my like organism and my physiology and can really stretch me in a way that stresses me out yet I can prove to myself that I can do it and then gradually you can type like dose titrate the exposure that we're dosing ourselves maybe I'll take a longer trip maybe I'll go to a you know maybe I'll go on a longer bike ride alone perhaps when I feel more comfortable so there are ways that once you build a certain level of mastery you can continue to push the bounds mm. yeah that was really good I love <laughs> I love those couple examples. I appreciate you you sharing those and, and being open about those. I think you, you said a number of things that are really important, you know, identifying the things that do currently provide you discomfort. And then the healthy dose of discomfort, I think is super key because you don't want to dive full throttle in because it might just knock you off so much. And you, you know, you might get an injury on the bike or you might go crazy by spending too much time by yourself. Um, and, and so you want to make sure you give yourself a healthy dose of discomfort so that you can maybe gradually work yourself into it. You know, that's certain, certain components of that have to do with health and fitness. Anytime I have people who are starting a program with me, if they're coming from a place of never working out, I'm not going to put them in the gym five times a week. We're going to do a couple of times and we're going to manage their volume and their intensity based off of what they've been willing and able to do in the past. Um, but what, I want to stay on this topic a little bit because I think it's really important. If there are people out there who are listening, they're like, okay, I want to build my stress intolerance 
but there's kind of a lot of different things that provide me with discomfort right now and that provide me with stress right now. How can I make sure that I don't work on all of them at the same time because that's not going to work? How can I make sure I pick the one that is most important to me right now? Oh, well, you kind of answered the question. <laughs> you, you asked it and answered it. Um, there, there's a great value in being very mindful to whatever task is currently in front of you and treating it as though it's the most important task of all time um, mm-hmm. and for all of eternity. I know it's a little bit exaggerated language, but this, this is what Maslow talked about. In, in, to, in order to get into the flow state, you have to treat it that way. And you, all the other things will come back and you'll get opportunities to work on the other things that are in your life. But, you know, if you silence those notifications, you cut down all the distractions and you really get committed to doing one thing at this moment, it's much, much better than to uh, have your head distracted with 50 things that you know you have to accomplish all at once. You're not going to be productive in any one of them. Mm. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. I, th- I want to kind of, it could have been something I probably did in the beginning, but I want to do it now. I want to talk about the sailboat framework and how you have at the bottom of the sailboat of self-esteem, connection, and safety. And the sail itself is exploration, love, and purpose. And it's kind of a guide to bring you through your growth experiences is what you guys say. And so I kind of want you to break down exactly how to apply the different aspects of the sailboat and just kind of define, I guess, what it is for everybody who is listening to me and hearing sailboat and like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> um, I don't know, Jordan, do you want to describe my sailboat? Sure. So <laughs> I've never heard you describe it. <laughs> so the sailboat is the extended metaphor reconceptualization of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that Scott put forth in his book, Transcend, which our book is based on. And our book really, and it is the exercises that it it takes Transcend to the next level. So the sailboat is a way of offering a dynamic and flexible construct to supplant the pyramid structure that's attributed to Maslow that he never actually designed. So I think Scott says it's some textbook makers that took Maslow's theory, the hierarchy of needs, and depicted it in the pyramid structure, which is very fixed. It sort of implies that we have to reach some certain basic level in order to get to the top, that it's very stepwise, that there's no turning back. Whereas a sailboat is far more dynamic. So Scott took this and I, I think it's just genius. And it's the extended <laughs> metaphor we use throughout our book. So especially you see why I like her so much. <laughs> <laughs> so so the the base of the boat is really the the core of our our safety, our basic assumptions about the world, our connection to other human beings, and our perception of ourselves. So we have to have a sturdy foundation in order to just stay afloat in the world. Let's say, you know, the waters are the trials and tribulations of life. The waves aren't going to stop. And if we don't have a secure sail, uh, excuse me, a secure boat, we're just going to drown. We're going to sink. But we don't just stop at staying, staying afloat. We have to move somewhere. There's a direction, there's a horizon that we are moving toward. And that's where our sail gets us to explore the world, to be curious, to have love, a loving orientation toward the world as a higher order need than 
simply being connected to other human beings and to having purpose to work towards some higher order orientation in life that is beyond us. And it's about how we are connected to the rest of humanity, the universe. And once that sale is open and well-functioning and it's integrated and the parts of ourselves, the dark parts, the great parts are, are, are working together harmoniously, that is transcendence. And I think that what is so cool about this model is that it's so flexible and that, you know, of course, maybe we have a, a, pa- a hole in our sail. Maybe our, our need for purpose isn't fully manifest. And that's okay. It's, it's about recognizing where some of the holes are. Maybe there is a, a, ba- a floorboard missing from the base of my boat. It, it doesn't mean that we're destined to sink and capsize. It's about recognizing like, what is the state of my boat right now? How is it serving the direction? And how am I, how am I circumnavigating all of the, all of the trials and tribulations of the waters? And how do I close those gaps? Yeah, I love it. So to, and to kind of say those again, now that everybody has a little bit more context, the base of the boat has self-esteem connection and safety. And so like, you guys have addressed, and I know I think Scott had maybe said it a couple of years ago that how people created that pyramid, almost portraying that it was a video game. Once you beat level one, you, you unlock level two, and you, and you climb the steps. And I know that you guys believe it's not like that, and it's not like that. Life is is very much not a linear process. However, the question I want to ask is like if somebody has you know low self esteem and they're not feeling a sense of connection with other people. Do you feel like they should not go on a high level of exploration and they need to kind of make sure that their foundation is sturdy enough and they don't have too many loose baseboards before they go try to step out of their comfort zone too much? Or talk to me a little bit about kind of your thoughts and beliefs around how sturdy the foundation needs to be to really let those sale components take off. We'll be back to the interview in just a second. But first, I wanted to share a quick testimonial from a past participant of the 10-week transformation program. I started running the 10WT in the beginning of 2020 and I've had over 150 people on counting go through it and they've seen amazing results both inside and out. If you're inspired to join after listening to the testimonial, then go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. We'll get back to the episode in just a minute, but first, here's what they had to say. My name is Ashley Reed. I joined the 10-week program really because I wanted to lose a little bit more weight and gain strength. I accomplished both of those things. I'm definitely stronger, and I've also made some incredible friends in the process, which I didn't expect. You're just silly if you don't do this. Well, first of all, what an amazing question. Like, probably one of the best questions we've ever gotten in any of our interviews. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I actually think that we underestimate the, uh, the value of shooting towards growth, even when our basic needs are not met. Um, this is why I don't think that the, the the pyramid is is a really good representation of things, because people often find that we get really stuck in your own head. Um, you you can feel lonely, and feel because you're lonely, you feel low, low sense of self worth. All these three things in the boat. I in an earlier draft of my book, I called them the insecurity cycle, um, because all three of them are a system, and the the so the less you have safety. You know, the less you feel connection, the less you feel self-worth. Mm-hmm. All the, any one of these things um, affects the others um, in a in a dynamic way. But we underestimate the extent to which engaging in self-transcendent experiences, showing love for the world, giving to others, um, getting outside ourselves, 
allows us to actually escape that trap and escape and get out of that cycle. So I think mm-hmm. we, we hugely underestimate that. No, I, go ahead, Jordan. I agree. I, I actually think some of the most powerful paths to self-esteem, to connection are through the growth needs and yeah. that, that second system, the sale, for example, if we have a love, we may have difficult interpersonal connections and we don't feel super connected to others. If we can embrace a more loving orientation toward life and really begin to see people for their humanity and, and get past some of the interpersonal conflicts, we can actually enhance our sense of connection. If we can focus mm-hmm. on the things that give us purpose and that put us into the flow state, that can reinforce a sense of mastery that bolsters our self-esteem. So I, so I, I agree. I think they absolutely are synergistic with one another and it's not necessarily stepwise with the caveat that if you're totally, if you're totally depleted in the, in those areas, it's going to be hard to engage enough to get the benefits of of growth. Absolutely. Um, There are actually a lot of things I could say to your, your, tremendous question we could we could write a whole book just answering that one question um i'll write this next one with you (laughs) that's hilarious that's hilarious (laughs) um um, because like you know whereas this is something i say whereas the base of uh stability is security the base of all growth is exploration i do think the safety part of of the stability of the boat is 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 the absolute most important foundation and if that foundation is gone so let's say that plank of you know that essential one and so you're letting all the water come in the way i like to think about it is all your attention is going to be focused on plugging the hole so that you don't sink you just won't have the attentional resources to explore and to show love to others you know like how many of us have been hangry you know and uh the last thing you want to do when you're hangry is like, you know, when someone comes up to you like a panhandler or, you know, someone comes up to you like, um, you know, hey, will you donate to my charity? You're like, <laughs> you know, you might be your, your response might be not as kind as if if you were fully fed and not desperate for food. Um, so I, I do actually I do absolutely um, think that that safety is so important. But beyond that, I think that we often can get caught in a learned helplessness cycle mm. in the boat so if we so i, I did want to say what I, what I said what i said but given given what i said i want to say sometimes we think that we're stuck in the boat when we're not stuck in the boat keep it keep expanding on the learned helplessness idea well there's a series of studies um that uh martin seligman the founder of the field of positive psychology conducted in the 70s where he would uh, shock rats and dogs in a cage uh every time they tried to leave and after enough repeated exposures to that, he stopped shocking them, but found that even when he opened up the door and they could leave, they didn't leave. Mm. They turned uh, automatically as the default, and this is what more recent research shows to be the case, um, automatically learned to be helpless. The difference between dogs and humans, one, one of the differences, <laughs> is that we can learn hopefulness. We actually have the the prefrontal cortex capacity to learn that the doors open, we can leave regardless of our prior exposures to trauma and suffering. Um, And dogs don't really have that higher level cognitive awareness to think it through and to learn that. So um, there is something special among humans in that regard. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. I think one of the things I want to, so one of the things that I talk about a lot with my personal clients with my 10 week transformation program is I think that oftentimes people hold themselves back because of the identity that they have of the, of themselves, their self identity, what, who they tell they themselves they are. And sometimes they tell themselves maybe not in these exact, in this exact verbiage, but that they're helpless. There's nothing I can do. I've always been this way. I'm, I'm never going to be any way el- anywhere else. And I think that the longer period of time that you tell yourself that story, the harder it is going to be to break down that story. So talk to us a little bit about how somebody can learn hopefulness and potentially break down the old story that they have of themselves. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Uh, the, the person with chronic low self-esteem, um, they tend to look at any ambiguous information and assume the negative. So for instance, the, everyone that they cross uh, the course of their day, if, if the person doesn't smile at them, if the person just has a neutral face, they assume, oh, that person doesn't like me. Oh, mm-hmm. that person discovered I'm a loser. Oh, what's the point? You know, every, you may, you may be a, a guy with low self-esteem and you see a, a cute, a cute girl you want to talk to, right? And, uh, they, and you start walking toward them and they're not smiling at you and you retreat immediately because you're like, oh, they hate me. You know, in some ways that's learned helplessness because, you know, you haven't actually really tested to see whether any of this is true. So the complete opposite, and I, as I would train people, is I would say, don't lead with how you, people are responding to you. Lead with the energy you want to put into the world. So why don't you lead with a big smile on your face? Mm. Why don't you, 98% of the reasons that you're experiencing the response you're experiencing from the other person is not because you're a loser, but it's because they're mirroring you. Mm. I think it's a really profound point. If I must say so myself. (laughs) And I think what we're alluding to is all of these cognitive biases that we hold, particularly the confirmation bias that we see the world, we see in the world what we expect to see in the world. So if we expect to see that we are a loser and basically that is our self view, we are going to attend and overvalue the information in our environment that confirms that view because there's so much stimulation in the environment at all times that our brains have to use some shortcuts and tricks to filter the information that is eventually processed and becomes a reality. So we have a whole section in the book about some of these cognitive distortions. So we can actually intervene on and put a label on some of these thinking patterns that have not served us in the past and reinforce this belief. I will always be this way. I will always be this way. That's very black and white. I am this, or I am that. And that's why I think it's so empowering for people to recognize that at any age, we are capable of tremendous growth, that neuroplasticity, our brains literally change throughout the lifespan. We used to think that only children had neuroplasticity, but we understand now that that's not true. And there are things with our thinking processes, there are behavior, behavioral interventions, we can intervene at the level of emotions. There are so many entry points where we can actually change our reality. And, and that's a choice that we have to make. Mm, that's so good. Amen to that. I'm, I'm aware of our time and I want to be respectful of it before, but before the last question, I do want to ask one more, you know, you talked about confirmation bias and, and you talked about how oftentimes what we experience is simply other people mirroring kind of what we're giving off. And 
you know, if we know that confirmation bias is a thing and that we are going to see what we expect to see, whether or not that's exactly what's happening, whether or not that's even what's happening, you know, that's besides the point. We're going to see what we expect to see. Is there a way that we can kind of flip that on its head and expect to see gr- like really good things and therefore see them even if they're maybe not as good as they actually are? Oh, absolutely. I Sometimes um, I would talk to some people, uh, even on my podcast, that everyone has told me I shouldn't talk to. Uh, they're like, oh, you know, that person's too controversial. Why talk to them? And, uh, you, you know, you know, you can think of some people, <laughs> that I'm thinking, but, but I, but this, is, but this is what I lead with. I lead with, I get them on my show and I lead with expecting to see greatness in them, expecting to see their goodness, expecting to see, and you know, what comes out in the interview, their goodness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the haters will always be haters. You know, the, you know, I can, I can show you the haters be like, look, there's actually goodness in these people. And that, you know, they, it, it's, that's, that's on them if they refuse to see it, you know, but. Uh, that's one example. Yeah, Jordan. I do think there's a dark side to having high, too high expectations sometimes, because when mm. the expectation is too high, we can set ourselves up for failure and mm. then we're just left disappointed. I, a more, something that I think is very helpful. And I say this to a lot of my patients, forget high expectations, have high aspirations, just a little word change, but it can vastly change our reality. If we expect good things to happen and they don't, we're disappointed. If we aspire for good things and they don't happen, we can continue to aspire. We're not setting ourselves up for failure. And I absolutely think we, we can, by just viewing the world differently, by, by changing the frame and by being a little bit more flexible and saying, you know, this is what I saw. Let's run this back. Could there have been an alternate interpretation of what happened? And really being flexible, I think, is a great way to turn that confirmation bias on its head. That's great. I love the distinction there between high expectations expectations and high aspirations. It's good. To get technical really, really quickly with the word, expect high expectations would be you know, obviously expecting something really good to happen is high aspirations, like believing that something really good could happen or how would you define that? I, I define aspirations by, I have this, this goal and through my own hard work, I'm going to find the path to get there through my own actions. I am an agent in this. And therefore I, I, Mm. I, I mean, without using the word aspire, I anticipate that it might be possible for this outcome to happen. It's not a guarantee. An expectation is something that is almost like, of course, this is going to happen. This is what's, this is what's destined to happen. Jordan, this, right. Yeah. This is genius. (laughs) (laughs) Just get, just, uh, yeah. Return that on you for a second. Um, You just made me think Jordan, all, all, you know, we can talk about this back channel, but narcissism. Exactly. Tation and that, uh, everything's going to go well for you and that you're going to be entitled to special things. But when you have um, aspiration, as you say, what you're basically saying is I'm going to put my all into this Mm. and the things I can't control, I can't control. And so therefore if it doesn't, the outcome doesn't turn out well, you can still look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, well, you know, I I gave it my best shot. And I can continue trying the aspiration doesn't vanish. Right. Perseverance is something uh, Nick uh, does very well <laughs> in his work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I appreciate that. You know, I I think the the great thing about this whole concept, this whole idea of confirmation bias and 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 the kind of like your mindset going into situations, expectations versus aspirations is it's so applicable to so many different things. I don't know why I keep applying it to the back of my head. I know a lot of people that go into dates, like a first date or a second date, expecting it to be terrible. And then they leave saying that it's terrible. Well, no crap. You went in with the very low aspiration that no matter what you're going to do, it's going to be bad. And so not only was the expectation low, but you had a low aspiration as well, thinking that there was like nothing that you could do to facilitate a, a fun day with that person. Yeah. And you can have a low expectation and a high aspiration. That may be a really, so if you mm. expect it, if you expect it to not go well, you can be pleasantly surprised in contrast and still aspire for it to be, it to be good. It's like, we have to know ourselves and know how certain situations can put us into certain emotional states that then be, beget different behaviors that we exhibit. And that's why I think our book, it's really like a lifelong journey in learning ourselves and understanding what situations bring up certain emotions that stifle us, that hinder our growth or can enable us to grow. And these things are different for everyone. So our book really, like we ask so many more questions than we give answers. We sort of present what the science says and then say, go experience this for yourself and go talk about it with other people. Cause we're all going to have different experiences and we, we just have to figure out what works for us. That's the thing. That's the thing right there. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, I want to make sure I get you guys get you guys out of here. So I want to just acknowledge both of you guys for building this relationship with each other and putting so many different great practical things into the world that people can actually use. Because I think a lot of people, when they hear maybe different people uh, in psychology, psychology students, psychology professors talk about these kinds of things, they're like, okay, but what am I actually going to do about this? And so I love that you guys have put together a workbook for actionable things and frameworks that people can actionably and practically work through. So I really want to acknowledge you guys for that. So y'all make sure you go grab Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. I know to a certain degree, every single one of you who is listening to this, that relates to you uh, to a certain level. So make sure you go grab a copy. Make sure you also follow them on Instagram at Scott Barry Kaufman and at Jordan Feingold. Um, I'll make sure I have all that stuff linked up in the show notes. Uh, is there any other p- good place that people should go learn more about this stuff and, and support you guys? We're on the interwebs. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, easily, I'm easily Googleable. Uh, uh, Nick, Nick, I'm going to head off now and have dinner. And the reason why I say that uh, is because I'm fo- I've am i been following your protocol. Um, uh, and I, I love that video. Uh, you know, you kind of taught us how to uh, really plan it out throughout the, the, the week and everything. And so I've, I've started doing that. And so I'm going to my fridge, right, uh, my freezer right now. And uh, yeah, so thank you That's for the good work about. you're doing. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, appreciate it, Scott. I appreciate it. Well, so last question, if you, if, if Jordan, if you have a second, Scott, if you got to go, I get it. But the last question is, I think that to get closer to the best version of yourself, it's a constant journey and a unique journey. And so the question for you guys is, if there are currently three things that you could do or work on to get closer to the best version of yourself, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Mm. For us. what, what For am us. I- for you guys and for you guys personally. I think that I need to put my computer away for more hours, like less screen time for me, I think is a big one. I think 
I've been really good stretching my physical activity goals. I've been lifting heavier weights. I've been pushing myself. I want to keep going. So very, very relevant for, for you in this audience. So thank you for your inspiration. And I think just constantly reminding myself that there's no, there's no end point, right? This mm. is a constant evolution and, and it's not linear. Like we might have bad days and, and that's okay. It's not a mountain. We're not climbing. We're just riding these waves and figuring out how we're going to meet the challenges as they come. That's awesome. I love it. Scott, you have three, one, three. Yeah. Um, similarly, similarly, as my math teacher used to say, similarly, um, similarly, um, I would, uh, like to jump more into the stream of my existence. Um, mm-hmm. to me, that means I've been wanting to do more like videos, uh, maybe like a TikTok coach, Instagram, do more videos and, and, and that will require, um, shedding perfectionism and opening myself up to looking silly maybe even to comments from people saying, Oh, I don't like your hair, <laughs> whatever. In order to do that. Yeah. I just have to jump head first into the stream of my existence more. Mm. That's awesome. That's good. That's powerful. Well, great things from both of you guys. I know that everybody is going to be uh, leave with some great ideas to think about and to act upon. And I know that there's a lot of people that are going to want to go grab choose growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. Scott, Jordan, an absolute pleasure having you guys on today. I appreciate it. Likewise. All the best to you. That episode was an absolute blast. I loved learning so much from both Scott and Jordan today, and I found this conversation so super insightful. Make sure you also share this with a friend or family member by sending them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And remember, growth equals change. It doesn't always have to mean more or mean bigger. Sometimes it actually means eliminating some things. And sometimes it might mean learning how to integrate the dark sides of ourselves in a positive manner. And remember that it's important when stepping out of your comfort zone to give yourself a healthy dose of discomfort, not too much so you fall flat on your face and not too little to where you don't even grow, but a healthy dose of discomfort. And lastly, remember that confirmation bias is a thing And if you use it to your advantage, then that's going to be a huge opportunity for growth for yourself. And you want to make sure you have high aspirations when going into situations, not necessarily high expectations, but not necessarily low expectations either. But for now, it's time. It's time to have less screen time, to keep expanding your comfort zone, and to shed perfectionism so that you can continue to get closer and closer to your best.